it was started off positive. It then got a bit depressing. It then got more positive, and then it ended on a depressing note. <laughs> <laughs> Thus is life at the moment, I feel. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Right, some Watchtower Weekly then. I think so, yeah. I think this week it's going to be a, a weird, like, is this invading my privacy or do I care with the current circumstances? Right. Which is a new thing for us. Yeah. Debating privacy in the time of a national emergency is kind of an interesting one because, like, I'm actually willing to give up a few more things than I probably would normally. And I think that's where this first one comes in. Governments around the world are increasingly using location data to manage the coronavirus. And this was reported by The Verge. As coronavirus continues to spread around the world, more governments are relying on mobile carrier data to track everything from patients who should be isolating to how well people are following the limited movement advice. And I believe they're doing this to someone in the UK as well. So I think what they're doing is, is judging how much and when people are moving around by, by various mass datas. And they're doing this um, in the EU, uh, sharing with health authorities in Italy, Germany, Austria. There's a slippery slope here, but I feel like this is actually quite a clever way of judging how well lockdown rules actually work. Yeah, I think it comes down to the person as well and how you feel about it. I think it's a personal thing, but it's one of those ethical conundrums really, isn't it? Well, I think they can do this and anonymise, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of it is currently anyway. Which, to be honest, I think that's... It's quite interesting data. If it's done in the right way, having like anonymized huge amounts of data like this is kind of how this idea of big data started. Using huge amounts of data that's anonymized to make decisions. That does translate to like societal decisions as well. And yeah, if this data can kind of help save lives, then... Yeah, or, or do things like other countries are using location data from, from cell phones. That's a bit more of a slippery slope, right? So there's a an app called AC19 in Iran that sends information to law enforcement mm. <laughs> and has like an electronic fence type thing that alerts authorities when a quarantine person moves too far away from their home. There's slippery slopes. Perhaps the most aggressive use of the cell phone location tracking is, is happening in, in South Korea, where the government has created a publicly available map from cell phone data that people can use to determine if they have come into contact with someone who has been infected. Oh, so they're actually tying individuals back to their cell phone data then. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. Yeah, that's a bit much. South Korea has kind of hit the least because they've done the most testing in the earliest lockdowns. Yeah. So, yeah, the privacy implications of making location data like this, well, public in this case, is pretty scary. But if a person doesn't want to be tracked, I guess they can disable location within that app or within whatever they're using to determine that data. Yeah, whether the US would track user data in a similar way remains unclear, but the federal government is reportedly in active talks with Facebook, Google and other tech companies. As soon as they start a list with Facebook and Google, I uh, I always start to worry. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty yeah for sure. Should we talk a little bit about some good browser news that came out. Yes, some good news, please. <laughs> yeah. So a major update to its Safari web browser. This is reported by Sophos.com. Safari 13.1 brings full cookie blocking and other updates to Apple's intelligent tracking protection privacy feature. Apple's really been pushing pretty hard 
on limiting the tracking that websites are able to do by default and sort of baking that right into the browser. So these new changes mean that online advertisers and analytics firms will no longer be able to use your browser cookies to follow you around from site to site. That means that if you search for shoes on Amazon uh, and you go over to Facebook, you're not going to all of a sudden start seeing ads for shoes pop up. Tracking and mapping your interests and behavior for whatever profit-motivated and data-collecting purposes they, they might have is now just completely undercut if you use Safari. Safari joins a host of other browsers that either plan to or already blocking third-party tracking cookies by default, including Firefox and Brave. In January of 2020, Google announced that it would gradually kill third-party cookies in Chrome over the course of two years. It sounds like this is a trend that will continue. This was something else. I, I, a little bit of a PSA surrounding this news. If you are a 1Password user who is only using Safari in terms of like, you know, you sign into your account in Safari and you don't have any of the 1Password apps installed, you should go install the 1Password apps because this also... <laughs> does have sort of a negative connotation for us that it will wipe out your 1Password data or your ability to access your 1Password data after seven days. So go, go install the 1Password apps. This affects full-featured web apps, you know, like 1Password that use local storage for legitimate purposes. 1Password stores your secret key, which is the other thing that you need to get into your account. So if your secret key is removed from Safari and you don't have it stored anywhere else, you will not be able to access your account. So yep. get the Mac app, download your emergency kit, print it out, stick it under your desk, whatever you do with that, just to ensure that you can access it later on. Yep. Yep. So I don't know how much this next story sort of has been talked about around your households, but just because you you already both work from home, Zoom has kind of exploded lately in, in the zeitgeist, right? Like everyone is, is using Zoom these days to communicate and have meetings and everything else. Like my five-year-old was in a Zoom meeting the other day Aww. with his class and it was awesome like it was just like just a whole bunch of voices clamoring it was it was great my wife is zooming with her coworkers and stuff like it's it's being used like crazy yeah it's just exploded yeah i, I really like the the kind of move on twitter that's like why is zoom so popular surely people can use skype and i'm like have you have you tried to use skype recently <laughs> yeah but also have you used skype this zoom popularity is is coming because of its consistency i think right yeah the idea that you're not going to get problems with voice or video or anything like that that's really important to a tool like this of course the other thing that people have been talking about is their stance of privacy yeah no zoom being thrust into the public spotlight is probably not what they were hoping for because there's so much it is very quickly coming to light how much shady nonsense they do and i even experienced it the other day and I didn't realize it until I saw it highlighted on Twitter a day or so later. So I rebuilt my computer over the weekend to do a fresh install of Catalina. I was reinstalling all my apps and everything. And so I downloaded the Zoom installer and I ran it and it just finished. Like it was really weird. Like it, I thought that I had blacked out for a second because normally when you when you run an installer, it's like next, 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 short, you're done. The Zoom installer, I ran it and it was just like I clicked next and then it was like, OK, we're done. I was like, I don't remember seeing any sort of like progress bar or anything. Strange. Yeah. And I was like, well, all right, it's installed. I guess I blacked out. <laughs> and then I was reading on Twitter later, like, hey, did you ever notice how the Zoom installer seems to finish real fast? So the Mac, I'm sorry, I'm going a little deep dive here. The Mac OS installer uh, bundle, you can run pre-installation scripts and they're really there to like, well, not abuse, but Zoom has abused them in such a way that they put the entire installation into the pre-installation script. So they can do whatever they want 
as soon as the installer runs. Wow. And instead of going through the normal steps of like installing the app and, and proper checks and balances, it's just like, like here, we just put it on your computer. And it's gross, and I hate it. And so <laughs> couple that with the fact that, like, last year, Zoom would install a web server on your computer, such that if you ever uninstalled Zoom, the web server that was secretly running on your computer would just reinstall it for you. This whole data sharing with Facebook thing, like, there's a lot of things that are coming to light. Oh, absolutely. Like, the, the, the fact that they now have walked back the phrase end-to-end encryption yep. because they weren't exactly doing that or doing what they were saying there. All their marketing material uh, said, and their security white paper said that it supports end-to-end encryption. And actually what they were talking about is endpoint-to-endpoint encryption. And actually it's not really end-to-end in the fact that they don't have the keys. Right, yeah. Also, has come to light, they have this idea of app group contacts, right? Which means you you kind of have a company directory and you type in an email address and it will kind of sign you into that area. But if you have an email address that is an, uh, a service and they don't understand that, you basically just get a list of all the people who also have that email domain. So they maintain a list of like a blacklist of domains and are regularly proactive, apparently, of identifying domains to be added to that. So you can't like, you know, find a list of everybody who uses yahoo.com. But if your domain is a big company or whatever, you really do see all the people immediately in that with photo, email address, and all that kind of stuff. They're really slipping and sliding down the rabbit hole of, oh, death by paper cuts of privacy interruptions, I think. Yeah. And I, and I have to imagine at this point that we are seeing the results of an app and a service that was not built with privacy and security in at the beginning and instead bolted on. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of see that in the Zoom bombings as well, right? This whole other thing that is the ability to kind of guess these nine-digit yeah. meeting codes and, and just dive straight into a meeting. I've actually done that by accident once. I put the wrong meeting ID. This is before we had kind of passwords on the end of our meeting IDs, but you could change the meeting ID and I did it accidentally and I ended up in, in someone's meeting that wasn't mine. Really? Yeah, really <laughs> what they need to do is kind of what they've declared to do, which is the next 90 days, they have stopped all features being developed and they are only working on the privacy and security settings and, and fixes. I kind of have a glimmer of hope there, but also... Like most of the privacy things that they've done have been choices, not mistakes. Yeah, exactly. You don't install a web server on the background so you can take one click away from the user that says, do you want to open this in Zoom? You don't do that by accident. Right. And so the only thing that I can think, like I I try to sort of adhere to the uh, don't attribute to malice, which can easily be attributed to incompetence. And so like the only thing I can think is that this is not them trying to be sneaky, but it's just like developers and product people having bad ideas and those bad ideas going through. And that it results in, you know, lowered security and, and, and sort of vulnerabilities and stuff like that. But I'm like, I am just trying to imagine that no one at this company is like, ah, you know, it'd be great if we could just like secretly send everyone's data to Facebook. Like there must have been a meeting around a boardroom table that was like, you know, what we we need is like uh, we can actually hook into this. There's got to be good reasons for it is what I'm saying. You know what it is? It's, hey, so I was running through that flow and I wonder whether we could just get rid of this click. Right. right. And then the devs going, well, you know, I, I, I... we could do it some way and then explaining the way to do it and the product person just going, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Let's do that. 
the decision making process there is missing out involving someone like security or someone that is focused on privacy and not building things with that in mind. And I, and I think that's what gets you into this situation where they were, they are now being investigated by the FBI. Wow. So, yeah, I really do hope that after this 90 days that they managed to kind of claw back their reputation because the underlying technology, it, it works really well. Which is why it's so popular, right? Yeah. Like... I don't mind clicking a few extra things, right? Like I don't mind clicking that join meeting button or open with Zoom button, etc. If it means that they're not going to run a web server <laughs> in the background. Right, right. It seems like they've gone a little overzealous when all they needed to be was reliable. So you really hit on something that's very important there. It works so well. I have been in Zoom calls with over 200 people and it doesn't miss a beat. And so, like, the tech stack is quite good. I haven't noticed them going from 10 million active users in December to 200 million now. Wow. I have not noticed that yeah. in the reliability of the actual calls. There would have to be some catastrophic event to get people to stop using Zoom at this point. Like, I, I believe that the momentum is too strong for any news to come out that would sort of reduce people's use of Zoom at this point. The momentum is enormous. There's no stopping it at this point. Yeah, I think if, if anything, they need this 90 days to kind of try and bring themselves back. I think they can get there if their top level of the company see this as an actual wake-up call rather than a PR problem. Yeah. Their blog post goes into some detail that kind of darts around the issue by saying, like, we did not design the product with this in mind, you know, that kind of thing. But they do say, you know, we recognize that we have fallen short of the community's and our own privacy and security expectations. For that, I am deeply sorry, and I want to share what we are doing about it. And however, we did not design the product with that foresight uh, that in a matter of weeks, every person in the world would suddenly be working, socializing from home. So they say what they've done. They have published some things that help with the idea of this Zoom bombing thing. They've also removed the Facebook SDK in their iOS client, and they've updated their privacy policy to be more clear. It's not clear from their blog post what they are going to do, really. They also say transparency has always been a core part of our culture, which, like, don't use words to say things for the sake of saying things. <laughs> yeah, I hate the caveats. Yeah, I think the, the wording of their privacy page has made me pause about this whole story. There was a heading that says, does Zoom sell personal data? And then the answer underneath on their privacy policy was, depends what you mean by sell, which is literally the next sentence. Oh, so, oh gosh. If you're going to ask a question in a privacy policy, yeah. the answer needs to be one word and it needs to be no afterwards, right? <laughs> yeah. What's your definition of sell? That depends. <laughs> that depends is never a good answer. Right, right. Yeah. Anyway, I, I really do hope that they claw themselves back from this because anything that is this stable in a time where everything else in life is unstable, then I do hope that they can bring themselves back yeah. yeah all right so i had a chance last week to talk to ken monroe from pentest partners and ken was a lot of fun to talk to he was just very upbeat and just a great interview it was really fun to chat with him 
Joining us today is Ken Monroe from Pentest Partners. Ken has worked in InfoSec for 15 years, over 15 years. And after discovering a hidden talent for hacking, he found his calling for pen testing. Ken set up Pentest Partners in 2010, which now boasts some of the most ethical hackers in the business. You can follow Ken at The Ken Monroe Show on Twitter. Ken, welcome to the show. Great. And thank you for highlighting my really embarrassing choice of Twitter handle. I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the internet is at an age now where most of us have matured out of really cringe-inducing AOL instant message handlers and stuff that we chose for ourselves back in the day. So no, there's nothing wrong with The Ken Monroe Show. It's, it's perfect. I mean, I'm assuming there is a show that goes with it, though. Right, like uh, kind of, yeah. I get wheeled out a lot to speak at large conferences about IoT security, and it, it does end up being a bit of a show. But yeah, sadly, I'm now stuck with that Twitter handle. <laughs> so, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and Pentest Partners and the sorts of things that you work on day to day? Yeah, so for sure. So, um, my background is pen testing pretty much the last twenty plus years. I helped create a team. Um, that work alongside me who are amazing people in embedded system reverse engineering. So a lot of the team had a background in industrial controls that realized some of the very same principles you use on, say, a PLC to reverse engineer it also apply to this new world of IoT. And that's where we're spending a lot of our time published research is in new smart stuff and things, frankly, that really just don't need to be smart. It seems to me, so I am very much come down on the side of the fence of if it doesn't need to be connected to the internet, please don't connect it to the internet. Like I have just a couple smart devices in my home. And one of the reasons is that it seems like it's almost easy pickings for someone in a position like you. Do you find that to be true, that the security on these things is pretty low and that people haven't really put a lot of thought into it? It's often like shooting fish in a barrel, isn't it? Sometimes, certainly the early days of IoT, it was just too easy. And frankly, even me, and I'm not particularly skilled, even I could find vulnerabilities in smart devices. I think the game is getting a little tougher, but it's still not tough enough. And, and that's sadly why I've been quite an advocate for regulation of this market. Five plus years ago, when we first got involved, I thought market forces would actually solve the problem. But sadly, I think the market's a bit broken. So sadly, I think we need to regulate it. What sorts of challenges are you finding from the increasing amount of IoT devices that are out there these days? Well, so back in the day, it used to be pretty straightforward vulnerabilities. And I remember my favorite one of all was a, uh, a kid's dolly called My Friend Kayla. And she was, up, I think, our very first published piece of research in IoT. And she was wonderful. She was a uh, essentially a Bluetooth headset inside a kid's dolly that then connected to your smartphone. There was an app on there. Your kid could talk to the doll. Microphone could hear what it was saying, could turn it into text, and then answer questions. Lovely idea. Yeah. She was a bit creepy, a bit Chucky-like. But, but lovely idea. <laughs> Problem was, is there was a complete lack of security on that Bluetooth connection. So anyone down the street or in the, in the next house, your neighbors, whatever, could um, quite easily connect into the dolly and have it say anything you wanted. So, oh, no. <laughs> like, and you know that someone did. <laughs> yeah, well, probably us anyway. But <laughs> it was such a simple attack because it was effectively a Bluetooth headset. So anyone with the ability to connect a Bluetooth device could uh, connect the dolly and speak to your kids remotely, creeping them out. But kind of the that a lot of people missed was... Actually, she was also a microphone. So potentially your neighbors or somebody unpleasant on the street outside could jack into the microphone and listen to what you were saying. And I don't know about you, but there's some things that I say I probably wouldn't want my neighbors to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah that's not great. No. 
We also had some fun things as well. So Hacker and me, when I first saw her, were thinking, have some fun with this dolly, couldn't we? And uh, we reverse engineered the mobile application and discovered you could actually tamper with it and make this lovely, cute little kid's dolly swear like a docker. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> That's hacking for good as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Every time I mean, you get this little innocent kid's dolly just uttering profanities and we're having so much fun doing that. <laughs> did it do it in a little kid voice too? Like, did it? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Ah, ah. <laughs> Fantastic. That's awesome. So this brings up sort of an important question then. If people at home, you know, test their own devices that they know are connected to the internet, are there simple steps they can take to sort of be confident that the stuff they have in their house is safe? So that that's really difficult. I mean, there's devices that even we look at that could take you know, several weeks of reverse engineering to figure out whether they're safe or not. There are a few really basic things that I think we can all do. I think the first one is decide first, do you actually need this thing? And then start thinking about the risks. What, what data does it have access to? So I'm always a bit more more careful about something like, I don't know, something that does audio and video, so a home security camera. Do you really want that camera, I don't know, in your bedroom? Right. If it was hacked, that's probably not the right place you want to have it. So just think carefully about what you're putting and where. Maybe it's a doorbell, maybe it's pointing outside your house. I'm not so concerned about that. But if it's inside your property, pointing at areas, you probably wouldn't want the average hacker to be looking at. And I'd also think carefully about devices with microphones. So I'll put my hands up. I do have an Amazon Echo, but the microphone is switched off at all times. I only enable it when I want to use it. Yeah, it is certainly one of the things that I think about a lot, microphones and cameras in particular. So we have a couple of HomePods, Apple HomePods in the house, but no Alexa or Amazon Echo or anything like that. And, you know, certainly no cameras like we just don't have any cameras. I think that that would create a level of paranoia in me that I'm not comfortable with. I would be sort of obsessively checking. it. Ask yourself why you need these things. I mean, one of the most fun things we hacked a while back at uh, DEF CON four years ago was one of the first smart refrigerators. And it was great fun. And we managed to steal your email passwords from your refrigerator over Wi-Fi, which, oh was, which was great fun. But the bit that blew my mind was it's a smart refrigerator with a big screen on the door. And the idea being is there's a camera on the inside so you can see what's on the inside from the screen on the outside. And the bit of me is there sat going, well, why don't I just open the door? Right. So ask yourself why you need these devices. I mean, increasingly, it's getting hard to buy non-smart kit. That is a real trouble because manufacturers see it as an additional selling feature. So, you know, why would you buy the washing machine that isn't smart that's the same price as the washing machine that is smart? You buy the smart one. That's the problem. It's increasingly hard to get. But I've been campaigning for consumers to have the right to turn things on and off. So if you buy a smart washing machine, you have to push a button to turn on the Wi-Fi. So in the case that most people, they don't use the smart features, unless you turn them on, you're going to be pretty safe. Yeah, absolutely. I have purchased a few devices where I had the option to sort of sign in to various services and like enable smart features and I'm, I disregard it. I don't even bother. So the problem you've got there is that device, maybe it's a smart TV or something, is typically the Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or other RF connections will be on by default. Oh. So even though you haven't used them, you've still got a device that sat there with radio signals coming out of it. And if someone knows what they're doing, and a good example was a smart air conditioner we found a while back. <laughs> yeah, random. And it was smart, so you could turn it on and off from your smartphone. Great idea. So the idea is being you use electricity because you could be more efficient about the way you used it. But because the smarts were on by default, even if you didn't set it up with an account, I could still come and hijack your aircon. So your AC, I don't know, turn it on in the middle of winter so it freezes you out or turn it off in the middle of summer. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I hadn't even thought about that. Well, now after we hang up, I'm going to go check my televisions and, and see if <laughs> see if there's anything else I can do to sort of turn it off. The TV is a good example of something that I do disable 
internet connectivity on. But you're right, like it might be doing other things that I should really check out. There was a good example with the Samsung Smart TV recently and someone who was savvy like yourself thought, right, I don't want that on Wi-Fi. I'm going to I'm going to not connect it to any Wi-Fi networks here. So that was fine. And they couldn't work out how it got itself an update. And after a little bit of analysis of the Wi-Fi networks, they realized the TV had connected itself to their next door neighbor's open Wi-Fi network. Oh my gosh. And that was mind-blowing. And it, it was verified as having happened, which just, wow, it's a TV that goes and finds its Wi-Fi. It wants the internet that badly. <laughs> it's got to get that update. It's got to know. Oh gosh. So in your career, what's been the thing that you found that sort of freaked you out the most or, or maybe brought about the most significant change after discovering something? Mm, so there's a lot of things I've seen over the years that have made my jaw drop, but a few examples that genuinely frightened me. I remember, <laughs> this is mad, uh, Christmas before last, we found a hackable smart hot tub. That was quite good fun. Um, so we could sit in the hot tub and you could make it go cooler or warmer or make the jets go. That was fun. It was silly. But it sat on the same IoT backend platform as some smart med tech. And whilst we couldn't and certainly wouldn't go and start looking at the security of those devices, because they're attached to people. There were things like ventilators and other devices. And, and that really, really worried me. Since then, we've also seen others have looked at things like smart insulin pumps. That really worries me. Yeah. Uh, misreading or an overdose could cause real problems. And then other areas that really bothered me away from just med tech was the aggregation. And by this, I mean, you're not just hacking one thing. I'm not just hacking your TV. The problem is it's the same vulnerability in your TV applies to all the TVs of the same brand. And that's when you start to see these big issues roll up. So I'm not just hacking one device. I'm hacking every single device at the same time, particularly if they use an internet-based API. And we found in the last year upwards of 120 million devices that were exposed online that we could have used to do things like uh, create enormous self-service attacks or the good old half-cent attack. So doing a very small fraud against 100 million devices. It's a great way of making a great deal of cash very fast. So there are things that both scare me and blow my mind that others haven't already tried. Wow, yeah. The medical devices is one that I hadn't even thought of yet. Sobering, isn't it? Yeah, ab absolutely. So a little bit more on the on the tech side of it then, sort of dialing it back from sort of the life-threatening aspects of, of some of this. I know last year at Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, they talked a little bit about some improvements that they were making to their HomeKit ecosystem, and in particular, having HomeKit secure video. So going back to the notion of video cameras and stuff and making it such that if you buy a HomeKit secure video camera, the footage never leaves your local network. It's encrypted before it's uploaded to Apple servers and stuff. Have you at Pentest Partners played with any of those? Is that shown promise or? Well, I think it's, this is what makes me a bit mad about IoT is it's not the brave new world. It's not something desperately new. What really makes me mad is that these security issues were solved years ago. It's not difficult to do IoT security as long as you think about it early enough in your development cycle. It's not difficult to provision unique keys, but it costs a little bit of money. So you've got this trade-off with vendors rushing to market first to get first mover advantage with their smart I don't know, urinal, for want of a better idea, you know, to get first mover advantage. But of course, it, in that, along the wayside, security gets forgotten. It, it, it's the afterthought. And bolting security into an IoT device once it's shipped and you know, the hardware's out there and it's being produced, that's really difficult. But for you know, people like Apple to come down now and say, well, look, we're, we're bolting all, all this new security to make sure people are extra safe. It's like, yeah, come on, you could have done this before. 
And you know, I do commend Apple, Google, and Amazon, and many of the other big manufacturers, which is great. You know, they're doing the right thing. It's becoming much, much more secure. It does frustrate me a bit when people make a big play of going, hey, we've made it secure now. So like, you could have made it secure before if you thought about it more carefully. Indeed. Yeah, I can certainly see that. So I want to talk a little bit about responsible disclosure. This is sort of the notion that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as, as a pen tester, I know like you are on, I, I, I'm so interested to hear what you have to say about this. So for, for those that don't know, responsible disclosure is when someone like Ken or Ken's firm finds a vulnerability in some shipping software or some shipping hardware. The notion is that in order to sort of prevent widespread attacks or, or exploits of that vulnerability, that the vendor is notified first and told, okay, so we found this problem. We are going to disclose this to the public in 90 days. Like you have 90 days to sort of come up with a plan of attack to address this and everything else, at which point, like we will work with you to sort of get the message out. Otherwise, like we're, we're going live with it anyway. Is that a good characterization of it? Yeah. So uh, to our objective, if we find a vulnerability, is to get that vulnerability fixed. That is our number one objective so that consumers can continue to use their products safely. That, that's what we want to achieve from this. The problem is what usually happens when we're dealing with IoT products is we'll try and get in contact with the vendor. And then this happens. <laughs> and you have absolutely nothing, right? <laughs> which makes life extremely difficult for us. Fortunately, it's increasingly rare, but probably 80 to 90% of all the disclosures that we start with, that first email contact gets absolutely no response. Then we try up in the game, we'll email every email address we can find at the organization. We'll try them on social media privately if we can. We'll try and find phone numbers for them, although that's usually pretty unsuccessful. And you get to this awkward point where you have a vendor who's shipping product to people that have serious security vulnerabilities that hackers could exploit, and they won't respond. Wow. What do you do? And that's the ethical quandary we're always put in. You have, I think, an obligation to help protect consumers. But you also have to balance that with, if you talk about this vulnerability, you expose that information to other hackers. So right. that's when we're often in a very difficult and sticky situation. Where we can, we'll ask government agencies to help. And in the US, CISA have been incredibly supportive in the past. And having a government's contact, make, making uh, contact with the vendor, it's amazing how often that helps get a response out of the organization. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Yeah. Sometimes we find retailers can help us. So people who stock the product, so it might be a Far Eastern manufacturer, but the retailer in the West, we sometimes find they can help us because there's a buying relationship there and they can help get them to listen. And that's worked quite well in several occasions. We also occasionally have to resort to working with a very small number of journalists that we trust who also respect responsible disclosure process. So we'll talk to them and often a journalist with a, a big brand name behind them, like for example, the BBC or some of the big security publications can also help. It's amazing when their press office gets a call from a journalist going, we found a vulnerability in your stuff. That gets them talking. Now, it, if none of that works, that's the point where we sometimes have to consider what are the risks of publishing this in the hope that people will then stop using the product because the vendor won't listen or just won't respond. That's a very difficult decision for us. I bet. Yeah, and I bet that's a very case-by-case -case basis too. Yeah. Depending on what the product does, what sort of information it has, how vulnerable the users are, those are really difficult conversations. Now, fortunately, over the last two or three years, we're hearing a little bit less silence and a little bit more thank you 
what do we do to fix it? And it's like, well, hang on a minute. You, you wrote the software. Surely you should know how to fix it. But <laughs> that's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of, it's improving. In fact, we just had one the last couple of days, actually. We were looking at a smart parking clamp and we found some vulnerabilities in it. And the vendor initially didn't respond. But actually, when we involved the journalist, they came straight back and actually were really cool. And they fixed it really quickly. They resolved the vulnerability and they actually took the time out to thank us by email, which was nice. And that's all we really want. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So it's, we're getting much more of that now than the stony silence, which is good. But it, I think, frankly, vendors still need to do a lot better. They need to publish how they want security researchers to contact them and publish how we do responsible disclosure to them. That's what we need. Indeed, indeed. So, Ken, we've talked a lot about you and Pentest partners going out and, and finding vulnerabilities and devices that exist in the world. I can't imagine that that is necessarily a huge source of income for you. So I'm assuming that companies also hire pen test partners to come and perform some sort of, well, penetration test against their software. It does happen. I mean, the reason we would do vanilla research is, frankly, is to keep our skills honed. It's always really interesting to look at a new product from scratch, particularly when you're reverse engineering hardware. So breaking firmware encryption, breaking code read bypass protection on a chip, for example. It's really good to keep your skills up. Yeah. It does result in work sometimes, which is great. It tends to come from the vendors who are kind of a bit more forward thinking. And the best vendors we work with are the ones who come to us really, really early on in the development lifecycle. So it's probably an idea on a whiteboard and say, right, well, how do I make that secure? Because if you get some security consultancy advice in really early in your project, a day's work at the beginning could save you 100 days of pain when your product's in the market. Yeah, absolutely. A- absolutely. We've we've seen that internally, right? We have sort of our own in-house security folks, of course. There have been projects that we've started where day one has been, well, we need to figure out how to make this secure before we can even proceed. Yeah, and that is totally the enlightened way of doing it. And I'd say to anyone involved in IoT, please, please get advice early on, really early on, because you will save yourself a whole world of pain. The biggest mistake many MAM vendors make is they choose the wrong hardware. They choose the wrong chips. They don't choose those with trust execution environment environments, good sources of random entropy to seed your crypto. They don't choose them ones that have got code readout protection set. They choose the wrong chip. Once you're building hardware, it's very, very difficult to stop that production process. You could be backed into a corner because you chose the wrong chip at the beginning. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so Ken, I kind of want to wrap up with the way that we actually end most of these interviews with experts like yourself. And it's What's the best piece of security advice that you usually give someone? What do you tell people that are looking to keep themselves safe online? So if it's IoT, I think that there are three things. Now, when you sign up for an IoT device, you're going to need to create a password. And I don't know if I can stress enough how important it is to use a long, complex, hopefully randomly generated password. That is critical. The easiest way to hack IoT is because people use the same password they used everywhere else. So that's one. Use a password manager, please. That's absolutely critical. The next one is keep an eye out for updates. Now, not just your IoT product. Keep your updates on the systems you're running. So on the mobile phone, the smartphone you're using, keep it updated. And then look for updates for the smart product itself. Now, typically, the way they're pushed to the product is they'll probably be downloaded to your phone and then you push them to the smart device. But that process isn't always automatic. So keep an eye out for updates to your smartphone app because they often include updates to your smart product as well. So just keep everything up to date, fix your passwords, and you'll be in a much better place. Now, that won't stop IoT hacks, but it'll make it a lot harder. Very nice. That's great. Ken, before we sort of wrap up, is there any sort of self-promotion that you'd like to do? Anything you want to tell the folks about that, that you've got going on? Well, we do all sorts of crazy stuff. I'm, I'm going to leave you one really random one, one of the craziest devices we've looked at recently. Believe it or not, there is a market for smart 
adult toys. <laughs> and in these times of isolation as a result of the coronavirus, they're actually proving remarkably popular. I was blown away to see that the sales volumes have gone through the roof. And you can see why. Actually, when couples are split up over vast distances, actually, it's very difficult to maintain an intimate relationship. So the idea being is that these devices can be used to help. They're also incredibly popular in the military as well. Again, a way of maintaining an intimate relationship over a long distance. And actually, they can save relationships, which is great. Problem is, we started looking at a few of these smart products a while back and found all sorts of crazy vulnerabilities, probably the most bizarre of which was the ability to remotely hijack someone's smart vibrator. Oh, man. And I'm going to leave you with that. <laughs> Ken, on that note, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a lot of fun. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. All right, Anna, ask one password. How well has it gone, considering that no one is probably talking to us on Twitter at this time? <laughs> well, there was one silly thing from Stan on Twitter, which I thought we could talk about. So any prediction on Matt's work slippers? I think they'll be elf slippers with bells on the end. So this was because last week Matt was talking about his working from home tips and he, he was talking about his slippers. So, uh, Rue, do you have any thoughts on what Matt's work slippers look like? I don't think that they're elf slippers. I think that's a fun that's a fun thing to, to talk about. But no, like they are very clearly some sort of tartan with uh, that match like a house coat style. I know that Matt said he has like a giant blanket that he wears as a cape, but in my mind, you know, sort of matching slippers and and house coat, some sort of red and black tartan. Yeah, I was going for like a a grandfather vibe. Definitely an old man's vibe. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about slippers for a minute and just how awful they are? Like, I have never owned a pair of slippers that lasts more than a year. They always fall apart. <laughs> and they're only worn in the house and only, like, six or seven months out of the year. Why are they so terrible? I don't know. It's one of life's big questions. I think you're buying them from the wrong place. No, I, they're good. They're good branded slippers. Like, it's the thing. <laughs> I try to buy the good stuff and it doesn't matter. I've had mine for a year now and uh, I've just dropped them in the chat. No one's right. They're really boring. Oh, we have a picture of Matt's slippers. They're not as granddaddy as I thought. They're great. So for Stan here... These are grey slippers with a, is it like a sheepskin lining as that? Like a black rubber sole? I mean, sure, put it in the show notes if you really, uh, you know. <laughs> oh, these are outdoor slippers as well. Wow. Beautiful. Putting the bin out with these, you know. Oh. oh. So apart from wondering what my slippers are like, what, what else have people been doing? <laughs> so we have this lovely review from Pure Alloy on Apple Podcasts. And they say, I thoroughly enjoy every episode of this podcast. It's about security without being dull. The hosts are fun to listen to and you'll learn something new every episode. It's worth a listen and a subscribe if you ask me. I've been using 1Password for over 10 years and love it. It took me many of those years to achieve this, but I have my family using it now too, thanks to 1Password families. So it's with that in mind that I'll make my only suggestion for improvement. I'd love it if the show included a short segment with tips, tricks and information about new features of 1Password. You guys do a good job of not making the show about selling your product and I do appreciate that, but it's okay to toot your own horn since I think many of us came here because of your great product anyway. Okay, it was it was a show feature request, not a 1Password feature request. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, that's kind of the objective of this Ask One Password segment anyway, to get you guys involved and get you to ask your questions about One Password. But I wondered, did we have any tips or tricks for them or any new things that you want to share about One Password? I'll get on the soapbox for just a second. There's a couple of things. One, if you haven't enabled password autofill from One Password on your iOS device, you are missing out on the most useful way to use One Password today. Go do that. Two, on the Mac, with the Mac app, you can drag and drop your usernames and passwords out instead of having to copy them to the clipboard. So if you are in an app, let's say Zoom, and you want to log into your Zoom account, you can actually open up 1Password Mini and drag and drop your Zoom username and password straight into the Zoom And app. you can pin on screen, right, to make that and, Yep, easier. you can pin it on screen too. And then the last thing is we've got a, a new update coming out for the iOS and Android apps. And actually, the Android app already rolled out. They allow you to do, uh, you can finally sort your list of items in the mobile apps, uh, Android and iOS apps. I've wanted that forever. I've wanted to be able to sort by like last modified in the mobile apps and so now i finally can and that makes me really happy nice but yeah i think the the best advice is probably you know eventually we might get a bit smarter about this but uh it's really easy at the moment you know you're constantly saving things in one password and and you're building up this huge database basically of logins and passwords and it needs to be like curated every now and then i think so yeah, I mean, just having a, a way to do that. And we have a number of ways, like you can add tags, you can add, you know, a different vault and then drag stuff in there, like the archive vault that we've spoke about before. I like to do that two times a year, I would say I probably do it. Sort by frequently used and then everything that I haven't used in like half a year, I dr- drag it into another vault and I remove that from all vaults so it doesn't show in search. It just helps tidy things up a bit and i think that's probably the key to using one password with like i think i have like 1500 1600 pieces of information in one password now so you know trying to find one piece amongst that is kind of crazy i have a world of warcraft license key in here that hasn't been used in (laughs) almost a decade so i should probably put that in my wow all right anna i think it's time we play Real or not real. I had to build that up there a bit because I knew I was going to say deal or no deal. And (laughs) and so like real or not real just didn't quite fit. But Anna, real or not real. Let's go. A man once ate an entire airplane. Nope. Well, if it was made out of waffles, that would be pretty good. But I can't see any other way. (laughs) No, this is not a thing. Maybe it was like a small aircraft made out of chocolate. Mm, Easter is coming up. No, this didn't happen. I'm sorry. Easter is coming up. Well, that's the time (laughs) when you eat aircraft made out of chocolate is it yeah i don't know how things work in your household but uh yeah i'm saying no like not real not real so are you guys ready for this sure so in 1978 a french man named michel letito started eating a sensor 150 airplane letito developed an unusual tolerance for eating dangerous objects when he was nine years old due to a condition known as pica which leads to an appetite for non-nutritive items <sighs> it took him two years to complete his metal field meal he finished consuming the last of the airplane in 1980 and then immediately died (laughs) well he actually lived till the age of 57 so (laughs) over the course of his life michelle's diet included 18 bicycles seven tv sets two beds 15 supermarket trolleys a computer a pair of skis and six chandeliers and a partridge in a pear tree i have opinions about this and i will not share them 
because they're not nice. <laughs> this is just ridiculous. Yeah. I just, I don't understand. Like, I can't talk about this. Between 1959 and 1997, he had approximately nine tons of metal. Yeah, he left behind an incredible legacy as a man with one of the most unusual diets ever recorded. No, he didn't leave behind a legacy. <laughs> it's complete nonsense. Unless legacy is, you know, what we're calling like a, a lump of metal. I just think it's extraordinary. I mean... He ate a bed once. Yeah. And a water bed and a coffin with handles. Yep. And a brass plaque. Oh, apparently soft foods such as bananas and hard-boiled eggs made him sick. His uh, digestive juices were unusually powerful. Digestive juices. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not something you want to end the podcast with. I would, I would have liked this story better if it was like, and he was a superhuman. Like, he was actually a mutant. I mean, this is pretty superhuman. Yeah, his digestive tract was tested by doctors that proved that his stomach could handle this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Which is pretty superhuman. I mean, what's the upside to eating a plane, though, really? <laughs> he could just take off. <laughs> Sorry, I just caught that. Oh, my God. Oh, I think I'm going to research this for the next hour is what I'm going to do. All right. Uh, should we call it? Yeah. I think we should. I think we should leave it on a nicer note than this. So if you are wondering about how to cheer yourself up and, you know, there's something uh, in the world that's happening at the moment that is awful, good news with John Krasinski uh, on YouTube. It's just, it's really awesome. Uh, he started his own little news network. He's got a... A logo painted behind him by his daughters, and he just goes through some of the good news of the day. It's a it's a great watch. Have you have you seen it, Rue? Yeah, I did. I, uh, I caught a little bit of it last night. In fact, I was expecting him to break out into into Jim at any point. Yeah, <laughs> but but I think actually his his natural personality is is so close to Jim. Yeah. <laughs> Jim has ruined all other men for me. <laughs> That's where we leave it. That's where we leave it. <laughs> Fantastic. That's that. That is the best thing I've heard all day. I like that a lot. Yeah. Well, I love you guys. Yeah, love you too, Anna. Love you too. Bye. Bye bye. <laughs>